Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Dave? Uh, it was a rough week. Um, great friend and pastor uh, died tragically in a motorcycle accident. Uh, his name was Chuck Ryer. Really, really great guy. Uh, just, just uh, uh, we had gotten back here last Thursday and I had a breakfast with him. And then the next day um, or that, that afternoon, just a tragic motorcycle accident. So he was just an awesome guy. Tough week kind of puts life um, uh, in perspective. It's very difficult, obviously a horrible event, and I'm sure a lot of impact for the church and the, the church family and, and the college and all the rest. Well, we're going to lead off the show this week by looking at the headlines surrounding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. As, as you know, earlier in the week on Tuesday, the CDC and the FDA released a joint statement recommending a pause in the administration of that vaccine in response to six cases of what they called a rare and severe type of blood clot among the 6.8 million people who have received the vaccine. And all six of those cases among women between the ages of 18 and 48. Now, I'm sure this wasn't the best news for you, Dave, uh, since you told us last week that on Friday, I think it was you and, and Katie were getting your shot. Yeah, we went to a CVS. And if you know me, you know, I don't like hospitals or and I don't like shots. So there are all these signs up everywhere about, you know, if you faint or do this or that. And I'm, I'm looking at my wife, Katie, saying, do I look like I'm about to faint? And, and I just, <laughs> just kind of laughing at me uh, in my slight hypochondriac attic state. Right. Uh, but um, did well. We were able to drive home and, and the, yes, discovered this news the, the following week. And I said to my wife, I'm like, well, you're totally fine. And she looked at me, she's like, don't you know my age? And I'm 49 and she turns 49 next month. She's like, I'm not 49 yet. This could happen. So uh, uh, kind of, you know, six out of 6 million, not, nothing, um, uh, nothing to be happy about, but, it, and, and kind of tragic, of course, for those six families. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, uh, these things are going to happen. And I think one of the reasons why we took the Johnson and Johnson is that we thought that that technology had been tested a little bit uh, longer, but there's, uh, there's no certainty, right? This is what science is, right? There's, you kind of, you look at the numbers and you try to figure out where things are, and then you have to make judgments um, thereafter. So, yeah, and that's, you know, a lot of the, the immediate reaction was really one, one in a million shot, and you're going to pause the administration of the vaccine. And you think about, you know, 560,000 people have died of COVID. And so if you're just weighing the, the risks on both sides, it's, it seems, it seems unlikely the assessment would land on the side of pausing the vaccine in at a time when there's still fairly rapid circulation of of the virus in a number of states. But as as analysis on this proceeded, I think one of the most interesting lines of argument uh, was advanced by Charles C. W. Cook over at National Review, and the point that he made uh, was was focused on the separation of powers question here, or really the, the constitutional question underlying. Why does the CDC and the FDA are the ones taking the lead on this? And it's, it's making a point that, that we've made several times before, that there's a, a difference between science laying out the facts and announcing that there were six such cases out of 6.8 million, and the, laying that before the political leaders 
and decision makers for their reflection and judgment and the FDA and the CDC essentially making the political judgment for them. And then everybody ratifying that in some really quick kind of way, non-reflective way, these officials receive the information, they receive the recommendation, and they immediately complied. There's no state that continued to administer the, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And there's an interesting case that I stumbled upon in, in Utah. Uh, Utah Governor Spencer Cox uh, made some comments about the dangers that he, he feared might result from this. And, and his focus was mostly on the long-term effect it would have on people's willingness to get vaccines, right? A pause like this might reduce confidence in the vaccines overall, and, and that might end up being more costly than whatever the consequences of continuing to administer the vaccine would be, given the, the risks involved in, in this particular matter. And, and yet, having said that, the, the article notes, he added that he is not a medical expert, and Utah will follow the federal guidelines on using the single dose vaccine. And so there's this disconnect here, right? That, that somehow you're not a doctor and therefore you can't make a moral judgment or maybe you don't wanna make a moral judgment in assessing the consequences of the risk that the science has brought before you. The science is supposed to serve the decision maker rather than direct the decision maker. It kind of reminds me of those commercials. I, I, we, I've been watching a lot of golf lately, and maybe the demographic for golf viewers is a 55 and above. But you know, you see all these different prescription drugs that are out there, <laughs> right. and there's always that warning. You know, if you take this, you might develop a fourth leg, seven heads, and and then like I'm like, at the end of all of this, is why I just don't like to take drugs just in general. But there's a risk involved uh, in in everything. And it's just odd, right, that with, with this in particular, that the knee-jerk reaction is not to make an assessment of that risk on your own or not to have leaders make an assessment of that risk as, as uh, those who are trying to employ political prudence, but for one voice to speak and the whole thing uh, to be shut down. So I, I was thinking about this, and it, Stephen Douglas in the 19th century was popular for his advocacy of popular sovereignty. So I think I have a, a, a new name for this. This is popular science sovereignty. <laughs> All under the heading, I care not whether one vaccine is stopped or started. I just want to follow the science or scientists. Yeah, exactly. No, that, that's perfect because it seems like what happens in all this is that you are able to dodge responsibility, right? And may, maybe this is a cynical way of, of reading it, but, but the scientists speak and somehow somebody, usually one of the scientists draws a conclusion from that, not necessarily a conclusion, they draw some conclusion from that. And then everybody just said, Oh, whoop, that's it. Science has spoken. Right. And they, they don't, they don't see the move there. This is the point that Cook's making, I think, very, very well in that piece. They don't see the move from the fact to the moral judgment. And, and they just assume that that move, well, the recommendation, once, once the CDC recommends something, there's no second guessing that because the science has spoken. But the recommendation isn't science, right? The recommendation is a moral judgment, a policy judgment based upon scientific facts. And scientists aren't especially expert in doing that kind of thing. And in fact, may have biases that make them not that well-suited to that kind of thing. They, they may not, as we've said, again, number of times on the show, they may not see all the other goods, the competing goods that need to be balanced against 
the particular data set that they're focused on and, and appropriately focused on in looking at the particular frequency of blood clots with respect to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Yeah, so it requires an epistemic humility on the part of scientists to take into account uh, those other factors, um, those other rewards that are lost by people not doing X, Y, and Z. But if all you are is risk averse because all you're thinking about is the object that you've been taught to do as an epidemiologist, then there's a problem if, if your word's the final word. Just to put a bow on this, in one of the other pieces that, that Cook wrote on the same matter, he quotes a, a CNN national affairs correspondent Jeff Zeleny's tweet, where he quotes, of course, Dr. Fauci on all this. And uh, Fauci says, we are ruled by the science and not any other consideration. And I think Cook nails it in response. He says, this is nonsense. Indeed, it's almost self-paradic nonsense. The science tells us that as far as we know, six people out of the 7 million who have taken the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have developed blood clots. It does not tell us what to do about this. There is no scientific answer to that question. It's a matter of judgment, of trade-offs, of consideration. One might as well say that one has come to the correct scientific conclusion as to what the speed limit should be. There is no such thing. And I I think this is one of the lessons that people are going to have to learn from this experience. And I think, you know, we're we're way behind on this, right? We've got a hundred years of of elevating science, fact-value distinction, social sciences, right? There's, There's a lot of intellectual scaffolding that's been built around all this. This is, this is downstream from a lot, of, a lot of reflections on the role of science. And even we can go back you know, to Bacon and, and work our way forward if we need to. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done in reassessing the role of science and scientists if we're going to get politics right. So I'm going to coin my second phrase for today's show. Uh, we're making a Faucian bargain. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> You're, you're a headline writer, if nothing else. We, we, we now have to fill in the 22 paragraphs that follow these, these great titles to pieces. Two op-eds, though, right there. So. We got it. All right. Very good. Well, with that, let's transition to our required reading as we now move into the last part of Volume 2 of Democracy in America. Right. So we have three shows left in the second season. We're going to spend today's show going through the first half of the final part of Volume 2. And then next week, we'll finish off the book. Then we'll have a week, two weeks from now, where we'll have some concluding thoughts on, you know, where do we go from here uh, as, uh, as a country and as a society? So the beginning of part four of volume two is a really interesting beginning because, of course, the subject matter of part four is the general influence of equality on the government of human societies. But Tocqueville hints to his reader that he's going to lead the reader to some new truth in this part of the text. So our question, when, when you have an author who says, I'm going to lead you to some new truth, is to ask the question, well, what is the new truth that you're going to lead me uh, toward? So he begins his discussion of this new truth uh, by telling that equality, in a good way, gives men the taste for free institutions. In a good way, quote, it renders men independent of one another, makes them contract the habit and taste of following their will alone in their particular actions. So to the degree that independence is a good thing and independence leads to a love of liberty, this tendency of equality may be positive. The charge that's always made, however, against independence and love of liberty is that if people love liberty too much, if they're too independent, 
this will lead society toward an anarchic state. But Tocqueville says, I'm not really worried about anarchy. I don't think the danger in modern democratic society is the movement toward anarchy. Quote, I am not convinced that anarchy is the principal evil that democratic centuries will have to fear, but the least. So here you begin to like put on your literary cap and you say, think all these 20th century novels, this, these dystopian novels. Uh, is the theme of these dystopian novels society run amok or anarchy? No, well, most of these 20th century authors, when they look at kind of the, the bad things that human beings have done in the 19th and 20th centuries, it's a movement towards authoritarianism, right? It's a movement towards tyranny. It's a movement towards consolidation, big brother, et cetera. And this is exactly the prophecy that Tocqueville makes here. This is exactly the new truth that he's introducing us to. He says, equality produces two tendencies. The second tendency is a longer, more secret, but sure path toward servitude. So the first tendency toward independence is easy to see. The second tendency of equality towards servitude is more difficult to see. And I think that Tocqueville here is, is saying, I'm going to make it my job, and I've tried to make it my job in authoring this book to have you see why equality may tend toward servitude. Well, I think if you were to publish this book today, everybody would nod along and say, well, yeah, that, that certainly seems to be the, the story of the 20th century, 21st century, centralization of government. But consider that he's writing this in the 1830s, 1840, publishing the second volume. And that's not at all what he would have observed in the America that he visited. Centralization was not the order of the day. Jacksonian America was moving in the opposite direction and, and dogmatically so. And meanwhile, if you think about you know, the anarchy danger, if, if America is not anarchic, it's certainly unruly in Jacksonian America. And, and it's really a remarkable insight that he has that he's going to develop in the chapters you're about to unfold to us about how this happens. But why is it that centralization is the tendency of democracy when everything he would have seen would have suggested the opposite? And the answer he's going to give goes back to the title of the first three parts of volume two, that democracy has a certain influence upon the way that we think, upon our ideas. It has a certain influence upon our sentiments or our passions. And thirdly, it has an influence upon our mores, the habits of our hearts. So there's something about the ideas that capture democratic people that lead them toward the concentration of powers. This is actually the title of, of chapter two. And, and here I can't help but think of uh, Thomas Sowell's great book, The Conflict of Visions, where he's talking about right, constrained and unconstrained visions of the world. And where do those constrained and unconstrained visions come from? They come from ideas that either support a constrained or an unconstrained view of human anthropology, government, etc. So, Tocqueville will argue is that there are certain ideas that are at conflict with one another, certain ideas that would be good and good for men to uh, adopt and adapt themselves to, and certain ideas that are creeping into the mind and, and kind of have won over the democratic mind. So what's a good idea? Well, a good idea, he starts with, is the idea of secondary powers that are placed between the sovereign and subjects. That these things naturally, he writes, presented themselves to the imagination of aristocratic peoples. So on multiple occasions, he's talked about these secondary powers. We, we think back to local government or regional um, 
uh, government. And we think that, that that was a secondary power. We think of associations, um, civic, political, and otherwise, separate the sovereign and the subject. And those are going by the wayside. And what are they replaced by? Well, they're replaced by ideas that counter the notion of secondary powers. In fact, you have this idea that there ought to be a lone central power that rules over all things. You have this idea that there ought to be uniform legislation that ought to be the rule uh, for everyone. And these ideas tend to dominate the democratic mind. So why set secondary powers aside and why embrace a lone central power and uniform legislation? Well, the answer he says is the way that individuals look at the world in a democratic age. As conditions, right, he writes, are equalized in a people, individuals appear smaller and society seems greater. Or rather, each citizen having become like all the others is lost in the crowd and no one perceives anything but the vast and magnificent image of the people itself, which results, he goes on to write, naturally gives men in democratic times a very high opinion of the privileges of society and a very humble idea of the rights of the individual. So one of the great analyses of civilizations is given by the philosopher Eric Berglund, where he talks about what makes the West unique among all civilizations. And we had a conversation about this in our first season where what Western civilization is unique because of all the civilizations, the individual has been somewhat liberated, right, from the overarching power uh, of a cosmic unity, uh, right, a societal organism. And there's this tension within the West between uh, what can the individual do and what does, should society require of the individual. And what Tocqueville is telling us here is that at the end of the day in Western civilization, the movement towards a democratic age is a movement that is going to snuff out the individual and force or compel the individual to do uh, what the society asks of him. Well, how can the individual survive if you have this comprehensive notion of equality that's central to the democracy that de Tocqueville is describing? If we're all the same, right? E equality, as you move into the 19th century, goes from uh, a fact that describes our condition before God as, as equal homo sapiens, as image bearers of God, and, and therefore a, a principle of justice that dictates how we ought to treat each other, how the government ought to treat individuals. It goes from that to being seen as a description of, of our sameness. And so if we're the same, then there really is no need for individuality. Why, why should there be what seem to be arbitrary or idiosyncratic distinctions between the laws of this community and the laws of that community, the laws that applies to this group and the law as it applies to that group. And so my individuality, even the individuality of, of being embedded in this community versus that community begins to give way before this more comprehensive notion of equality. Which begs the question, where did the idea of sameness come from? And I think that the answer that Tocqueville is suggesting to us here is it came from the influence of modern political philosophy itself. Most of the uh, famous political philosophers at the beginning of the modern world, whether that's Niccolo Machiavelli or Thomas Hobbes or John Locke or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
people that we've covered adjacently in our discussion of Tocqueville suggest a human sameness, right? Suggest that we are alike as human beings and we ought to be reduced to our sameness, to our equality. And I think part of the battle that Tocqueville has here for the soul of the West and really maybe the soul of human history is to make the case for differentiation once again, to make the case for the individual so that the individual is not subsumed by this sameness. And made to serve this government that he describes as, as lone, simple, providential, and creative. This is the kind of government that results. And you know, you work through that. Those are four classical attributes of God. There is one God who has no parts, providential, who, who sees, right, who plans, who directs the course of history, and of course, is the creative power behind all that is. That, these are attributes that Tocqueville explicitly ascribes to the government that emerges out of this democratic society. And so there's another way individuality is going to be lost, right? If, if government takes on this role of, of relating to people in this godlike way, right? Of course, the true God can deal with us as individuals in the most particular way, who can know the, the, the number of the hairs on our head. But, but a, a pseudo God, right? A, a, a government acting in place of God can't do that, but must press us all down into a common level of equality and sameness. So why do we buy into this? Why do our sentiments align with these ideas of the creation by much of modern political philosophy of a mortal God? Well, because it pleases us. Uh, this, this idea of sameness pleases us. Uh, Tocqueville writes in the next chapter that living in a democratic age, most people are at least five things. They're in isolation and they're individualistic. They tend to be disinterested in public affairs. They're ready to hand off care of public affairs to the state. They lack the time for public business and are busy with their own private affairs, or they lack the energy or leisure required for political life. So uh, the energy that it takes, the leisure that it takes to think for yourself, to act for yourself, right? to be an individual uh, is not present within modern society, even though uh, all of the various um, changes and modifications for life seemingly give us that much more time. And then he says something really interesting as where when you, you have to stop when you read Tocqueville at this point, because he's, he's telling you, pay attention here. He writes that such pensions are not invincible. I shall not deny since my principal goal in writing this book has been to combat them. Not to stop them is enough for them to fill in the human heart. His whole enterprise in writing democracy in America, right, is to combat these tendencies, to combat these pensions. It's one of the things that I think people, at least modern readers of Tocqueville often miss is it seems like he's just describing things. He's a, a sociologist or uh, maybe a historian of some sort. But yeah, he's a political philosopher who's, who's making a case, who's making the kind of moral argument we were saying political leaders aren't making uh, earlier in our discussion of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. He, he's, he sees a danger and he's urgently pressing upon people the, the remedies for that danger. Right? There, there's statesmanship that Tocqueville is exercising in composing this work. 
Yeah. So these, all these things make it a really difficult thing for him to try to overcome using his art, using his authorship, but he adds more to it. This is kind of why this is going to be why it's an even greater challenge. We have a fear of material disorder. We have a love of public tranquility. We have a feeling of our individual weakness. And finally, we hate individual privilege, yet we're willing to grant great privilege to the state. He ends this discussion by saying, I think that in the democratic centuries that are going to open up, individual independence and local liberties will always be the product of art. Well, Whose art? Someone like Tocqueville's. Centralization will be the natural government. Going back to this point that you made, Matt, it's so essential that statesmen fight the natural tendencies of democratic peoples right, to become subservient. You need to practice the art of statecraft, of statesmanship to enliven human beings to their possibilities. And by the way, along the way in this work, de Tocqueville has been dropping just those kinds of hints and principles guiding statesmen in, in the way to go. Which is exactly the topic of the last chapter that I want to cover for today, chapter four, where he talks about particular and accidental causes that serve to bring a democratic people to centralize power or to turn it away from that. A, a lot of what's happening here, Matt, is, is, is kind of out of the control of a statesman. So uh, at what point uh, did freedom make its way into society vis-a-vis uh, -vis equality? Um, did one come before the other or vice versa? Well, in what matter was, uh, or what manner was equality founded? Did it come from class war or oligarchic interest? And no leader is gonna be able to control that. Thirdly, what's the level of enlightenment among the people and fourth, what's the frequency of war? All of those things, right, are particular causes that might bring us toward centralization. But he says the principal accident that aids the centralization of power has to do with the character of the leaders themselves, the origin of the sovereign and its pensions. Who are the people that found our society? And what are their pensions? What have they crafted in designing a regime? Have they designed a regime that will tend us towards subservience, right? Or do they notice, right, that, okay, if we want to embrace equality, this is the way we must embrace it, but direct that democratic river in a way that helps human beings flourish. I think this is going to be a great transition for our adjacent reading for today, where we talk about the authors of the Federalist Papers, because they're very different, right, than your kind of uh, Machiavellian ruler who just simply wants to subsume right? All things under his precept. Uh, the American princes, American founders uh, are willing to kind of go outside of the box and, and to understand where human beings are and what human nature is like, but to direct things toward their better course. But then a new prince arose who did not know the founders. The princes have changed, right? The princes have been looking for opportunity to centralize. They've been looking to gather power to themselves. And of course, we'll see that as well in the headlines as we move forward in the show. Yeah. And he also, and I just end this, we won't say too much about chapter five, where he uh, discusses the difference uh, between uh, Europe and America, but he's seen in the experience of Europe after the French Revolution, that this democratic tendency is very real and uh, very able uh, to overcome uh, democratic peoples. But uh, let's, let's turn to the Federalist Papers, and let's turn uh, in particular to Federalist Papers 23 through 37. I won't uh, go through uh, the individual um, parts of Federalist Papers 23 through 36, but they're, they're basically talking there, uh, the authors, they were talking about what, what are the ends and means of government? 
a very famous uh, expression in Federalist 23 uh, by Alexander Hamilton, that when, when dealing with ends and means relative to the construction of a government, quote, the means ought to be proportioned to the end. Person whose agency, the attainment of any end is expected, ought to possess the means by which it is to be attained. So what is leadership or statesmanship? What does it amount to with regard to the ends of government? We have to first define what those ends are. And Hamilton's going to do that in this paper by saying the principal purposes of the union that we're trying to perfect are these, the common defense of the members, the preservation of public peace, as well as against internal convulsions and external attacks, regulation of commerce with other nations and between the states, superintendents of our intercourse, political and commercial with foreign countries. That's why we have a national government. That's the end of the national government. What are the means? The authorities essential to the common defense are these, to raise armies, to build and equip fleets, to prescribe rules for the government of both, direct their operations, provide their support. These powers ought to exist without limitation. What are your ends? What are your means? And his definition of ends and means in Federalist 23, and the founders or framers of the Constitution's definition of ends and means in this time period is very, very different than how we've defined the ends of national government and the means that the national government ought to have in the year 2021. Right now, the ends are comprehensive, and there's really no limit to the role of government, and, and therefore, any means, right, every means ought to be gathered unto that government. There's not any real need to show a proportionate relationship between those means and ends because the ends know no bounds. Now, the ends are very specific in Hamilton. The means are unlimited in the sense that you have to have as many soldiers as you need to win the war, as much revenue as you need to win the war, but the war is a very, winning the war is a very specific purpose, right? And what that, of course, is in service of ultimately is justice and the general good, to use the language of, of Federalist 10. Which brings us back to Machiavelli's famous dictum, the ends justify the means. And Hamilton is not saying that in Federalist 23. He's saying that the means ought to be proportioned to the end, right? And the employment of those means ought to be understood in terms of what the public good is, not what my own private interest or my own acquisition of more power or glory might be. So different, different conception, which kind of shows you in many ways that, that the American regime is, is very much a, a, an outlier among modern nations. Not a perfect outlier, but there are things taking place here in this constitutional convention. There's thought about statecraft that is different than a lot of the thought that shaped modern democratic statecraft, which brings us to the paper I really want to emphasize here very quickly in in this whole discussion of the centralization of power and Tocqueville's advocacy uh, to to fight against those pensions, to just assume power for the sake of gaining more power. And that's Federalist 37. Federalist 37 is one of those kind of um, seldom read papers that I think I would rank right up there with one and 10 and 51, uh, because I think that there's nowhere else in the Federalist papers do you see the display of epistemic humility at at work. And the... uh, the framing of this epistemic humility, this is a paper written by James Madison, is, is really easy to understand as long as we keep our, um, our eyes on, on three things that he's going to reference in this, uh, in this paper. Uh, the first is the following. Perhaps the most difficult thing to understand that is worldly is the human thing. 
human beings are incredibly complex. If there was just kind of, you know, a, a dummies for human nature book mm-hmm. or dummies for human governance book that we could just read and live in a perfected world, right? It'd make things a lot easier, but it's not the case, right? That, that, that we are, right? And an incredibly complex being. And Madison says that. Madison says that we don't move with the same arc that planets and stars move. We kind of move to the beat of our own drummer. And that, that makes it difficult to kind of predict why this happens when it does and, and all the rest. But secondly, he points out, right, that, that we don't have perfect cognition of all things in this world. So the thing that we're trying to understand, the subject, which is the human thing that we're trying to understand is incredibly difficult, but we as human subjects, right, have limitations to our understanding of objects within the world. So there's that difficulty as well. But then thirdly, how even if we understood something fairly accurately within the world, so we overcome our own um, cognitive inabilities and we had a pretty clear view of the human thing, we then have to communicate it to others. But how do we come up with the right words that when we use those words, uh, they are received by others and they understand them and then employ that understanding, right? It's a very, very difficult thing. And uh, Madison says that our whole effort in the convention was to try to kind of work through some very critical problems. Well, how much energy did we give to the national government? What's what's the requisite amount of stability, right? How do we maintain a government that respects the genius of Republican liberty? These are hard questions. We did our best. We didn't create something that was perfect, uh, but we did our best because we understood what our limitations are. Yeah, it's important for him to really lower the expectations of those that are observing the constitution and reading it. And, you know, you read it through and you say, well, boy, here's three things I don't like at all. And the question is, what do I do about that? Right. Do I then become an opponent of the constitution? Is, is three things enough to make me an anti-federalist or do I look at it and say, wow, only three things. And, and maybe I'm not right about those three things that I'm concerned about. Uh, maybe I've misjudged the matter. Yeah. And then question, Matt, as we head toward the headlines, contemporary headlines is, well, what do we make of their misjudgments? Do we say, oh my God, they, they just totally misjudged it here. They misjudged it there. They did this, they did that. So what we ought to practice is epistemic arrogance rather than epistemic humility. What we ought to do is the exact reverse of, of what they did. And I think that's not the answer, right? The remedy is to try to look at the problem with the clarity that they tried to look at the problems that they were dealing with and to know that we're going to do our best to to try to figure this thing out, uh, but we're going to make arguments for the public good. We're not going to make arguments that place our private interest above another. Experience for them was the great source of wisdom. Uh, Limited experience means you have limited wisdom, but that experience was interpreted to go back again to our earlier point, within a moral framework that was a given. There were certain ends pre-established, given to us by God for political life, for, for human life as such. And whatever experiences you learn from and whatever wisdom you acquire by those experiences had to then be interpreted through that moral framework. And that's how you maintain the constraints on the power of government and the role of the individual under that government as you move forward. All right, Dave. So what's the reading assignment for next week? We're going to complete 
Democracy in America by reading chapters six through eight of part four. Uh, that begins on page 661 with this famous title, What Kind of Despotism Democratic Nations Have to Fear, and, and goes right to the close of the book. So about a 25-page or 20-page assignment for next week, our last assignment of the semester. Sounds great. All right, well, now let's turn to our headlines, and we're going to focus on a couple of contemporary moves toward a further concentration of power in, in centralized governments. And again, this isn't maybe something that we're surprised by in our own day, but I think there's a couple of examples that are worth talking about a little bit in light of some of the things you were showing us in De Tocqueville, Dave. So the first is a, a series of reflections on the recently approved American Rescue Plan Act. So that's the, the COVID relief bill, the, the latest COVID relief stimulus bill. And uh, Professor Nikolai Wenzel of Fayetteville State University had an interesting piece at Law and Liberty this last week where he went through that bill and he was using uh, another analysis at, at reason.com uh, in order to do that and, and trying to show how so much of what was in there wasn't really about stimulus at all. Now, he's an economist, and so he was talking about the microeconomic effects, the macroeconomic effects, and some of the other economic issues that surrounded this. But but then there was the question of the size and scope of government. And if you dig into that, that Reason article a little bit, uh, you find, for example, that there's a lot of education spending, uh, $130 billion, in fact, of spending on primary education. But only $6 billion of that was for the current fiscal year. So the rest of that was spread out over the next seven years. Now, if we're talking about economic stimulus, you don't spread out the money over seven years time and especially have it be backloaded, right? That's not how economic stimulus works. The, the immediate shock of shutting down the economy last, last year, if, if it still is relevant, it's relevant right now, right? We're, we're, we're emerging out of that, but, but it's not about seven years from now. So what's going on here? Well, you're laying down some foundation for, he argues, future federal spending. You, you raise the baseline expectation of how much the federal government will be investing in, in local education. What about in healthcare? Well, there's a lot of money for helping people subsidize the healthcare plans offered by Obamacare right? and trying to remove some of the income level requirements there that get more people involved transitioning toward step-by-step greater centralized role away from the use of private health insurance, more toward government-sponsored programs and the like. Or new interesting provision has to do with a, a new t- a child tax credit. So individuals will be getting a check every month from the government rather than you, know, you get your, your refund right annually when you pay your taxes, they're going to start giving that out month by month. And so what's that going to be? Well, that's really the beginning of, of a national basic income or something of this sort, where, where not just a, a means-tested program like a welfare, uh, or if it is means-tested, it's at a much higher level, right? It's not, not for those who have no income or are below the poverty line, but now we're talking about the middle class being brought into a program that will provide modest, but, but repeated and consistent support for families and, and a transition again to a, a greater reliance on the national government for one's basic income moving forward. 
Yeah, well, whether it's the American Rescue Plan Act or the American Jobs Act, the the end of of the the plan itself does not kind of match up with the means, right? Of what's going to how the money's going to be spent. Um, you know, in in the latter, a lot of talk about you know this emphasis on infrastructure. And if you read on on that other act, how much money is actually going toward actual infrastructure? <laughs> right. Not much. You have to redefine what infrastructure means in terms of a care economy, which basically assumes kind of anything that you do that cares for people is um, is producing infrastructure results. But that's not what the word infrastructure means. And I think I see the same thing at play uh, here in this Rescue Plan Act, that there's just, there's, there's, what is the end of all this? The end of all this is to grow government. The end of all this is to is to is to extend the budget out in a manner so that uh, for further decades, uh, those who oversee the federal government will tend toward the well-being of the American people. And what happens when you create a economy in which 40, 50, 55 percent uh, of the gross national product is assumed by the federal government. You, you no longer have independence, right? You have pretty much servitude as Tocqueville has described. Now, what might prevent that? Well, what might prevent that, at least in theory, could be freedom, mobility, right? Because if, if one country decides it wants to go all in on centralized authority and wants to have the government consuming half of the national economic pie, and all kinds of regulations that go along with that and begins to, to take away the ability of individuals to make important decisions for their lives. If one country does that, well, there's other countries. And, and if people and capital can move easily and you know, there are national laws that prevent some of that, but, but in our modern age, you can move pretty easily from place to place and you can pick up and establish yourself somewhere else uh, in many different situations. If, if you can do that, then that always creates a dynamic that restrains the centralization of authority, right? That, that freedom works against this. And the ability of individuals to, to move around gives them some way of constraining this, this tendency of national governments to, to gather more and more power under themselves. So what's the solution? Well, of course, from the government perspective, the way you get around that is make sure it's not only one government that's doing all this, but every government, or at least every government that's in a country that, that people would be likely to want to uh, move to. And so this is the second story I want us to talk about for at least a minute here. In recent days, uh, Janet Yellen, of course, formerly of the Fed, but now Treasury Secretary for President Biden, has been calling for a global minimum corporate tax. It's not an accident that this effort originated right at the time when President Biden was announcing a desire to raise the corporate tax rate in the United States from 21% to 28%. 28%, as the Wall Street Journal reports, would push the United States from the middle of the pack among major economies to near the top. And so there'd be obvious dangerous consequences there. And so Yellen says to avoid what she calls a 30-year race to the bottom on corporate tax rates, we need to get all the major economies, and she's talking about the G20, and put them all on the same page. And once they're all on the same page, then 
corporations don't have any way of avoiding the tax, where freedom no longer is the, the antidote for this problem. And so the race to the bottom, which is obviously a, a negative connotation, is another way of saying that freedom is messing up our plan. Kant wanted perpetual peace. I think Yellen here wants perpetual servitude. Yeah, no way out, right? There's, there's no escape. And so you, know, you look at some countries that have intentionally lowered their corporate tax rates as a means of, of attracting investment, right? There's some countries that are just less naturally attractive, Hungary for one. No, no offense to any folks from Hungary, but uh, that's not the country that's going to be the first place where you're going to go to start the latest tech startup, unless, unless you're attracted by the fact that their corporate tax rate is only 9%. And you think, well, okay, you know what? There are a lot of well-educated people in Hungary, and there's some natural resources there. I, I can make that work, right? I may not be as excited about living in Budapest as I would be about living in, in San Francisco or in Austin or London or Paris, but there's good business conditions. And so I'll take my shot. And so Hungary can compensate for some of its other weaknesses by using its corporate tax rate in order to attract business and, and good for the Hungarian economy. But not if this goes through. I don't know if this goes through and all the EU has to be on board and they have to. And so who benefits from that? Well, we, we know who will benefit from that, right? All, all the already big countries, all the already uh, attractive countries will be able to stay on top, right? Paris will still be Paris and London still London and New York still New York and, and Budapest will not be able to develop in the way that otherwise would be able to. So do you think at the end of the day, we'll all have to depend upon Peter Thiel being able to create new city-states on islands and us living there and, and living by Bitcoin, et cetera? Or maybe <laughs> Elon Musk and Mars? Mars, right. Yeah, these are, these are not super attractive options, right? And you can see that, that they, they, they figured out right, that the escape hatch is, is somewhere else. And if there's not any attractive somewhere else's, then there's no escape. Well, that leads us to the gray book. And speaking of rather significant reforms or efforts to centralize political power, just this last week, several prominent Democrats proposed expanding the Supreme Court to 13 members, uh, which just accidentally, I'm sure, would allow them to appoint four new justices and create a, a seven to six progressive majority over the current six to three somewhat squishy conservative one that, that we have at the moment. And so here's a chief Senate sponsor, Ed Markey of Massachusetts commenting on, on the reasons for the proposal. He says, the court is out of balance and it needs to be fixed. Too many Americans have lost faith in the court as a neutral arbiter of the most important constitutional and legal questions that arise in our judicial system. So I love the fact that the solution for being out of balance <laughs> is seven, six, right? Not six, six. He's got a different notion of balance, right? A progressive majority is balance. Never mind 13. That's an unlucky number. It's like you throw that out completely. Right, right. No, it's, 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 uh, it's a well-chosen number for its purpose, but balance does not appear to be the purpose. Well, anyway, so with, with this cynical uh, move in mind, we're going to grade three modest reforms that might be considered with respect to our constitutional system. All right, leading off, Dave, number one here, two presidents 
Now the uh, the history on this one is is not a pretty one. It was proposed back around the time of the Civil War by John Calhoun as a way of protecting the Southern slave interest from what he saw as, as the rising Northern majority. But let's leave that part of it aside. We have Democrats, we have Republicans, they're constantly fighting. Why not a Democrat president, Republican president, make the primaries essentially the general election. They each have to agree for a bill to go through. We'll get some compromise. And, you know, I mean, sure, Biden and Trump could get along just fine. They could share the East Wing and the West Wing of the White House. You could imagine how well that might work. Yeah, I don't really have much trust in a biumvirate of uh, Trump and, <laughs> and, and Biden. I, I think it would probably break apart the way that Caesar and Pompey did. So if you're really looking for like a civil war, you know, with the next couple of years, you want to kind of get it in, you know, before the end of the 2020s. That would be a good proposal. Uh, otherwise, um, yes, uh, on F minus for this one. The two F minus. Okay, two presidents. Yeah. Speaking of the Federalists, you can go back and, and read Hamilton on plural executives. I don't think he'd be a fan of that proposal either. All right. Well, struck out there. Let's try a second one. So this one's got a little bit of a more recent heritage to it. Uh, how about expanding the House dramatically? So, you know, that, that can be done by law, which is an advantage over the previous proposal, which would require a constitutional amendment. Uh, back about a dozen years ago, Michael Ferris, who you may know as the founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund, um, founder and first president of Patrick Henry College, he was the lawyer representing some plaintiffs who wanted to argue that the size of house districts had grown so much, created an inequity that violated equal protection, uh, the, the principle of one person, one vote. And so he argued in that lawsuit that they ought to increase the House to either 1,761 members or 932, with a kind of mathematical precision I think you'd probably appreciate, Dave. Um, I'm going to say 1765 in honor of the Stamp Act Congress, which was really the first coming together of Americans to declare the principle no taxation without representation. So I think it's in, in the spirit of that. What do you think about essentially quadrupling the size of the House? Well, as a former state legislator in New Hampshire, where we had 400 members, uh, I think I represented uh, my my own street and maybe three others <laughs> in a small town. Uh, it, it's not a good idea. Uh, I, here's why. I, I think that the larger the legislative body, uh, the more likely it is uh, that uh, you have anonymity uh, that defines that body. Uh, and the more likely it is that you have ignorance uh, that defines that body as well. Now, it doesn't have to be that, the, the case, but uh, the more likely you are to depend upon the power brokers uh, within that, that legislature. So not quite an F minus on this one, but I still think it's unacceptable. I'll give it a D minus, a little higher of a grade. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have to go back to the Federalists on this one too. You know, Madison, Federalist, say it's 55 to 50, 58, he lays out a case why it's okay to have a smaller House of Representatives to start with. And he makes just the point you're arguing that, you know, you think you're going to expand the House, you're going to make it more democratic. But in fact, what you do is you increase the power of, of demagogues who arise among that group. And it ends up not being a, a deliberative body anymore, but, but the approximation of a mob. All right. Well, so we're, we're over two. So our last remaining one is, is the Markey proposal, uh, 13 Supreme Court justice, or if you want to go 12, if you want real balance, Right, we can go. We can go twelve, but how about expanding the Supreme Court, Dave? What do you What do you think? 
Well, I'd give that one an F minus as well, because I think that um, if we got to 13 uh, before uh, 2022 and Republicans uh, won in 2022, the number would be 15 thereafter and probably <laughs> go up exponentially uh, over the years until you maybe had a Supreme Court as large as the um, as a legislative branch that we just mentioned. Yeah, I think I think the principle is as big as it needs to be to get what we want. And that's probably not the most consistent principle with, with the rule of law. On a positive note, this is probably not going anywhere. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any way you're going to get 60 votes in the Senate to approve a bill like this, and you certainly can't do this through reconciliation. And if we take our, our two moderate Democrat senators at their word, they're not going to blow up the filibuster either. So it may be we're going to dodge all these bullets at least for another year or two. Well, that brings us to the crystal ball. As we wrap up the show, uh, the Masters was pretty kind to us last week, Dave. We were, we were picking between pairs of players who had been tied after two rounds who would finish better. And you got two out of three, and I got all three. So you're, you're now 19 and 13 on the season. Uh, I'm 14 and 18. Got some work to do to get back to 500, but made some progress that way. Uh, we didn't get the actual winner, Hideki Matsuyama, but we both had picked Jordan Spieth and he did quite well. Three shots off the pace, tied for third. That triple bogey in the first round, ultimately killing him. A few other missed putts along the way that raised some real what ifs. Um, but anyway, we're, we're glad to have golf, right? Golf helped. Now we're going to take our chances this week um, by shifting to soccer, but for a good reason. Uh, the, the, the oldest soccer tournament in the world in its 140th season, is the FA Cup in England. And we're now at the point where they're the semifinals. And this is a classic tournament. I mean, it's hard to appreciate this at an American level. Like, what would be the equivalent of this? I think the U.S. Open is maybe the best example of this because anyone, in theory, can win the U.S. Open. You go to a regional qualifying, and if you win the regional qualifier and you work your way up, you can actually get out there playing against Jordan Spieth and you can beat them, right? If you can beat them, right? Everybody in theory is eligible for the U.S. Open. Now we know it doesn't work out that way and it's the usual pros that end up playing, but, but in theory, you can make your way. Well, this, this tournament starts with 736 teams in England. And, and so now we're down like in the semi-semi-pro levels that you start with. And they work through preliminary rounds. They finally get to the main drop. And, and this year you had the, the biggest disparity ever between two teams that played earlier in January when Tottenham, who's of course one of the leading teams in the Premier League, the top league of English soccer, was against Marine, which is in the eighth tier, which is not even professional, right? And, and they played, the, it was a great match, but fans on both sides had a great time. Um, Tottenham won 5-0, not, not surprisingly, but, but that, that's what they call the magic of the FA Cup. So all, all those teams are gone now. We're down to four uh, of the big fish. And so we've got Chelsea, Dave, at home against Manchester City. So both of these just made it into the semifinals of the Champions League. So one of the things to think about is, do they have their minds on other things? we got that match. And our second match, Leicester City at home against Southampton. So let's start with Chelsea and Manchester City. Who do you like? I'm going to predict the upset here. I think uh, the Chelsea upsets Man City and, and uh, moves on to the final. All right. Well, I think that's a... That's a real possibility. They've been an incredible role since they got rid of their old manager and replaced him 
um, about three months ago. But Manchester City is, is so tough, and they're going for the quadruple. Right? They actually have a chance to win four different trophies for the first time ever this year. And they, and they just missed this a couple of years ago when Tottenham knocked them out of the Champions League. They won all the three English championships. I think they're going to try really hard to go for it. So obviously that means you got to win this match. So I'm going to take Manchester City. All right, Leicester City at Southampton. A little interesting dynamic here. So Leicester City, speaking of incentives, is right now in a top four position in the Premier League, which means they would qualify for next year's Champions League. Big, big deal. Lots and lots of money, lots of prestige that goes along with that. Southampton is kind of mid-table, lower mid-table. They're not going to get relegated, but they're not going to make European competition. This is their big chance. Leicester City has more to play for in other competitions this is Southampton's big chance. Does that make a difference? Or Leicester City being the better team probably on paper and at home, is that enough, do you think? Yeah, I think I'm going to take Leicester City here. I, I, I don't think they'll be that upset. Um, I think they'll they'll take this one. All right. I'm going to go the opposite way again. I think it's going to be Southampton. I think they're going to be fired up. Now, this is their shot at glory. Thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, we're on Instagram, at Democracy in America Today. You can reach us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Have a great week. We look forward to talking to you real soon.